you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, friends. You can hold them there. Heavenly Father, I ask right now, as I have prayed uh, leading up to this morning, and so many of my brothers and sisters have prayed that your word would go forth in power and authority and with unction. I am a weak vessel. But I believe, Lord, that you have given us and that you will put within my mouth today in a way that I don't totally understand, a priceless treasure. So King Jesus, we are asking you to speak today. And we pray at the beginning of this message that wherever our hearts are tempted to come to your word and say, show me something I like, show me something that I agree with, God, we pray for grace to repent. We would not be so proud. We would be humble. We would submit ourselves to the word of God. For your word is true. It is authoritative. It is the only reason I have any business being up here. Because you speak. When you speak, we want to listen. Help us with that today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that for the last... Uh, seven months or so, we've been studying the book of Mark. And last week, Gene preached from Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23, and reminded us, I hope some of you are remembering right now, he reminded us that following Jesus means loving God from the inside out. I'll say that one more time. Following Jesus always means loving God, not, not with just these outward religious kind of rules, but it's from the inside out. God's greatest concern, think of it this way, is really not how many times you've gone to church. It's just not. Nor is it how much money you put in the mission fund or how many good deeds you have performed. God God is not some kind of cosmic parent that is happy as long as you do your chores and complete your homework on time. He's not like that. He cares about your inside. Who you are on the inside. Because who you are on the inside determines how you live on the outside. Mark 7, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. So, question for all of you. Can another person plant an evil thought in your mind? Can your girlfriend pull you into sexual immorality? Can a drug addiction push you toward theft? Can a nice guy at work entice you into adultery? Well, of course. Of course they can. 
That's not the whole story. That's not even the main story. The choices that we make in life are far more, friends, than the product of the people and circumstances that are all around us. You know what they're the product of? The heart inside of us. All these things are, are influences, they're factors, but ultimately it's out of the heart that our life is lived. We, we do life from the inside out, whether or not we realize we do life from the inside out. As Jesus said, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And I think it's fair to say that we live in a world that takes issue with Jesus on several levels, okay? Where does our world take issue with Jesus? First, we like to think, do we not? We're not immune to this just because we're in the church. We like to think that all of us are basically good on the inside. It makes me feel better about myself. And second, we, we hesitate to speak in categories of moral right and wrong on the outside. We, we like to think that we're basically good on the inside, and, and the world around us, unlike Jesus, likes to, to think that, that there's really no clear categories of moral right and wrong when it comes to how we do life on the outside. Sensuality, Jesus says, is an evil thing, but we're not so sure. Are we? We're not so sure. We, we wonder what gives him the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. It's my body. Hands off my body. If it feels right to me and nobody's getting hurt, why can't you just accept me the way I am? Why do you, Jesus, God, church, everybody, have to go around making moral judgments about how I do my life? Just chill out. That, that, that's the world we live in. And friends, I don't think there's a better case study for exploring the morality of who we are on the inside and what we do on the outside right now than the issue of homosexuality. And that's what I'm going to be speaking about this morning. In recent years... I think it's fair to say that few issues have caused more division and confusion in the American church. Many of you would know that just this week, the PCUSA, majority of their presbyteries, voted to endorse gay marriage. And many people in those churches are thrilled, and many others have threatened to leave. In light of the questions that our culture is asking and the moral assertions that Jesus was making last week in Mark 7, we decided as pastors that we would take the next two weeks to hit pause on our study of Mark and talk about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. We're going to do that this Sunday, part one, next Sunday, part two, and then next Sunday evening, I want to invite all of you, as many as you like, to come back and join me in the seminar room and We're just going to do open Q&A on this topic. Uh, The reason that we're doing this, again, is because this is a hot 
topic issue in our culture right now. And increasingly, our world is uncomfortable with anybody making moral assessments of how we do life. And we need to know how to respond to that. More more importantly, we need to know how God thinks about that. And because this is basically a message in two parts, part of me hopes that many of you walk out today uh, feeling like I didn't finish the sermon. Um, I told Gene a few days ago, as I was preparing for what initially was going to be one message, uh, buddy, I have like an hour and a half of material. (laughs) And so we decided to break it up. But that means that this week I'm going to spend most of my time focusing on uh, what what may be called a a theology of our sexuality. And then we're going to come back next week with some more practical questions. So if you listen today and you think, Matthew, I have more questions now than answers, that's okay. That's okay. Hold your questions. We'll come back next Sunday. Um, At the outset, because that's I expected, it got really quiet in this room. I want to acknowledge that, that this is a difficult topic to preach on. Don't shy away from difficult topics, but it's a difficult topic for at least three reasons that I could think of. First, in my mind, homosexuality is not some sort of abstract philosophical issue. It's a deeply personal issue because it's a relational issue. I had several friends in in college who were gay. I'm not. I had several friends who were. Or were questioning their sexual orientation. And I think it's safe to say that many of you, maybe most of you, if you are under 30 and you're listening to me right now, that you have at least one, if not several, friends um, in the LGBT community. And so for you, this is not just some sort of abstract issue. When I, when I just said a few minutes ago, we're going to talk about Bible and homosexuality, faces started appearing in the Friend, I want you to know that's a really good thing. Because whenever we take a, a topic like this and just pull it out of relationship, we mess up. We get things wrong. I also know there's a high probability that some of you listening to this sermon, and I fully expect this, have either experiencing or maybe even right now are experiencing intense same-sex desires. And perhaps you've kept quiet for years out of fear that nobody in this community would understand. Or if you were honest, that you would be shunned. Maybe you're listening to this message online and you're trying to figure out if Kingsway is a safe place for you to visit. And if that's the case, friend, I have... One simple request. One simple request. Please don't listen today for what Matthew thinks or what Kingsway believes. Say that one more time. Please do not listen today for what Matthew thinks, primarily, or even what Kingsway believes. Listen for what God has to say. Listen to what God has to say because the psalmist says, Of God's word, listen to this, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
You know what that means? It means something really good. It means God hasn't left us to just fumble about in the dark. And, you, and, and bring in a little CNN and a little Fox News and do our best. No. No, he's, he's given us a lamp and a guide. And friends, there is no moral hot topic going down today for which this word is not exceedingly relevant and sufficient. Do you believe that? So listen for what God has to say. Not primarily me reading King's Way. The first reason this is difficult in some senses is it's personal. It's relational. The second reason is that we really need to be honest about this. The church at large, and maybe even some of us in this room, have made a lot, a whole lot, of hurtful, unbiblical comments about the LGBT community. You know, I think of the Westboro Baptist posters. Y'all seen those? A couple years ago? I won't quote them. Or I, or I think of the countless times that I've heard the word gay used as a put-down. Maybe you've done that yourself, or you do that regularly. Or, or, or I think of just, sadly, in the church, what can become kind of a us-versus-them attitude. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. But we naturally develop self-righteous attitudes toward people we feel like we can't identify with or relate to. So, if you're over 40 and regularly think or say things like, I don't, just, I, I don't understand how anyone would want to do that. Those people are messed up. You need to know something. You are not walking in humility. You are not loving the way Jesus loves. And you need to know that I am not here, anything I preach, to give you ammunition for Facebook. And if I see any of you quoting me in that kind of way online, I will be calling you. Because I am here, friends, to give you truth that leads to redemption and healing and hope, and glory. That's what I'm here to do. So without feeling some sort of misguided obligation to apologize for the sins of the church in general, which I think is misguided, we need to humbly recognize that a lot of our public and private comments to date on this topic have been less than helpful. A third reason, finally, why I think this is difficult is that, unfortunately... The gay marriage issue has been framed as a human rights issue. What do I mean by that? Gay marriage issue has been framed as a human rights issue, which creates what very much feels to me like a no-win scenario for thoughtful Christians who respect God's Word and really want to wrestle with what God has to say about homosexuality. Anything, unfortunately, but wholesale acceptance of of any minority agenda is branded as the height of intolerance. You know what that doesn't leave room for? Thoughtful Christians who really want to wrestle, not with what 
Fox News says, but what does the Word of God say? And if that's your perspective, that the only way the church can be loving towards you is to accept you, no questions asked, just the way you are, and never challenge anything about your life, then I would simply argue that your own commitment to tolerance demands that you give me a fair hearing. And if you end up disagreeing with my conclusions today, your commitment to tolerance still requires that you show me no less respect than you demand for yourself. And for all those reasons, this is not an easy sermon to preach, but let me also tell you why this is not a difficult sermon to preach. I I love you guys. I do. And I love you because God loves you. And I'm convinced that the most loving thing I can ever do for you as a pastor is to help you align your thoughts and your feelings and your actions with the Word of God. So it's a difficult topic, but I'm eager to do it because I love you and God loves us. Here's what we need to remember. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Amen? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. So with that in mind, let's look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome to explain the nature of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why why, why do you say that, Paul? Why do you say that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ contains within it power to save? Why do I need to know that, Paul? Look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is convinced that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God in the sense that the gospel reveals how man can be made right with God through faith in Christ. But hold on a second. Made right with God. Made right with God. I thought God was a God of love. I thought that that God loves all of us and all of us are already right with Him. Why does He need to show us how to be made right with Him? Friend, the reason the righteousness of God must be revealed is because something else was also revealed. Look at verse 18. 
for the wrath of God. Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's what you need to know. Verse 18 is not God pointing finger at all those bad people out there. He's not pointing the finger at the LGBT community. He's pointing the finger at you and me. The wrath of God is revealed against our ungodliness. Against our unrighteousness. Every one of us in this room has failed to perfectly conform to the character of God in our actions, in our attitudes, and in our nature. We are by nature ungodly, not like God. And that means that left to ourselves, we merit nothing but wrath and judgment from God. But we don't like to think that way. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. We, we like to think that we're basically good on the inside. Oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've got some bad habits or maybe I need some, some anger management tools. But, but why keep bringing God into the equation and using words like, like ungodly and unrighteous? That, that just seems harsh and cruel and divisive. I mean, can we really know what God thinks of us? And your lifestyle might look different than mine, but I'll I'll bet you God loves you just as much. I mean, I that's what I believe. He's a God of love. That's what I believe and it works for me. Well, that's a great question. What would you say? Well, here's what Paul says. The human quest for truth is not a morally neutral proposition. We like to think that we're unbiased and objective as we study and write about philosophy and medicine and geology and astronomy and religion and even sexual ethics. But friend, we're not objective. We have an agenda. Every one of us has an ulterior motive we approach what the Bible says about our sexuality. Every one of us is keenly interested, as Paul says in verse 18, in suppressing the truth about God. That's our natural inclination. Suppress the truth about God. Why, why would we want to do that? Why would anybody want to suppress the truth about God? Well, I think it's simple. The truth about God makes a claim on the way we do life. And we don't like that. We don't want anybody else getting in our business and telling us how we need to do life. We bucket that. We push at that. But the reason we desperately need the gospel, Paul explains, is because we have chosen to do life our way instead of God's way, and there's a consequence to that, and it's called judgment from God. And human sexuality is Paul's example par excellence of how that goes down. So we're going to consider what God has to say in the next few verses about the nature of our sexuality under six headings. Three this week, three next week. And taken in 
logical sequence, church, I believe that these verses are going to help us see how the fallen condition of our sexuality reveals our desperate need for a Savior and God's redeeming power in Jesus. That's the theme. So here's the first heading, point number one. Paul dives into the nature of our rebellion against God. Point number one, creation reflects the glory of God. Look at verse 19. For what has been known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Think of it this way. The created world around you is a work of art. It's a work of art. If you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or you snorkel on a coral reef or you watch the migration of wild salmon or you're a rain guy and you you study the structure of planetary orbits or you're an outdoors guy like me and you know you hike up all the way to to Howlett's Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park at like 13,000 feet and you just see for miles there's a reason that when you do those things I think if we're honest we feel really small I remember when we were in the National Park and I'm sitting up there and the wind's blowing I feel like I'm the tallest thing around. And I just felt so utterly tiny. I mean, it was like if enough wind just came by, I'd just be carried off the summit, you know, and dropped in some crevice, and the world would go away. Do you realize that's by design? God actually created the world. He made it. And he made it to get something done in you. What's that? To teach you who he is. Just like a a painting would would teach us something about the nature of an artist. Or or a sculpture would would teach us something about the nature of the sculptor. Or a a work of music would teach you about the heart and emotions of the composer. So... So this world we live in has been created, made by God, to teach us things about who He is. The Bible tells us that that God is a spirit. We can't see Him right now with our physical eyes. But that's actually okay. It'd be nice. I've had plenty of moments where it's like, God, if you're real, I want to see you right now. That'd be great. But it's not necessary. Because God hasn't left his existence or character up to the wiles of our best guess or the wandering of our imagination. He has revealed himself. He's a revealing God. He's a God who says, I will take who I am and what I'm like and embed it somewhere where it can be seen. That's that's one of the most remarkable things about the God of the Bible. He's a revealing God. He doesn't hide himself from us. He doesn't say, you know, go to grad school and get some esoteric spiritual knowledge. And maybe when you're a trance after four years of yoga, you'll have a revelation. You know, if anybody ever tells you that, I just be like, uh, dude, sorry. Um, maybe you were drinking. I, you know, I, I don't know. But, but we, here's the point. We already have a revelation. 
in his word, and even for those who don't have his word, in the created world around us. God made the world so that we would wake up every morning or walk out every night and and sing the song that we did earlier, right? Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. That's, That's by design. Which means, friends, please hear this. This is so important. That on the final day, when every one of us stands before the judgment seat of God and gives an account for our life on earth, no one will be able to look at God and say, not enough evidence. No one. Nobody will have the moral ground to stand before God and say, you know what? Not enough evidence. He has given plenty of evidence. The question is not is it present? The question is, will you perceive it? Not everything that's present is perceived, but it is present. The created world leaves us, in verse 20, as Paul says, without excuse. And the sad answer in verse 21 is that we willingly choose to not perceive what the world around us says about God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The most important question you will ever answer in life is not who you marry, how many kids you have, what job you work, or where you live. The most important question you will ever answer in life is how you're going to respond to the Creator who made you. That's the big question. Because the fact that you can clearly perceive that God is real and worthy of absolute obedience is not a guarantee that you will respond with absolute obedience. The first man and woman didn't, Adam and Eve in the garden. They did the exact opposite. And Paul says that starting with them, every one of us after them, keep doing the exact opposite. We refuse to worship and honor God for who He is, and we refuse to thank God for what he has done. Look at verse 22. Here's how he summarizes this. What do we do? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Okay, what's, what's the height of wisdom? I'll tell you. Height of wisdom is worshiping God in every area of our life as the most supremely glorious being in the entire universe. That is wisdom. You know what folly is? Folly is pretending either he doesn't exist, or if he does exist, that something else is better than him. That's folly. Creation reflects the glory of the Creator. But point two, friends, sin exchanges worship of the Creator for worship of the creature. Creation reflects the glory of the Creator. It's like a work of art. But sin exchanges worship of the Creator and puts in its place worship of the creature. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what? 
exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now listen, the Romans reading this letter would have known immediately what Paul was talking about. I mean, we read there and they're like, it's like wildcrats? What's up with that? I have toddlers. But they would have known what he was talking about because as they walked around Rome, on every street corner, there was a massive lavish temple with a statue in there of stone or wood that was resembling images of man or animals or reptiles or creeping things. All sorts of gods. And I think we, we look at that sometimes where we read verses like this and we think, you know, you people are idiots. I mean, you're just ridiculous. You actually cut down a tree, carved it, and then you bowed down like it could save you? What, a, what an ignorant pre-modern. Well, be careful. Do you know we do the same thing? We do the exact same thing. We, we have not one fewer idols than ancient Rome. They just look different. So we've exchanged Venus for comfort. And Apollo for convenience and Zeus for security. Comfort, convenience, security. That, that's what we bow down to. That's what we worship. That, that's what we look to for meaning and significance and identity and worth and, and satisfaction. You, you might not set up a little poster in your home that says comfort you know, and kneel down before it every day. But you know what? If I looked at your wallet or your checkbook, or your calendar, it might tell me some things about whether you think satisfaction is found more in acquiring physical comfort or in knowing and loving God. We don't bow down with our bodies, but, but we bow down with our time and with our checkbooks and our calendars. We exchange worship of the Creator for worship of the creature. And we can turn anything into an idol, even, even good things, right? We can turn our marriages into idols. Satisfy me. Be God for me. We can turn yard work into an idol, kids into an idol, our, our church into an idol, my reputation into an idol. And, listen, we can turn sexual satisfaction into an idol. All sin, at its root, is an act of idolatry. That means it's ascribing value and worth to people and things that rightly belongs to God alone. It's saying God is not infinitely worthy of praise. Something else is better and more satisfying than Him. That's the great exchange. Listen to... How Genesis 3 describes the first great exchange in the Garden of Eden. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Notice those words. Knowing good and evil. What, what, what tempted Eve to sin? Think about it. What, what motivated her to take of the forbidden fruit? Well, she decided that worshiping God wasn't enough for her, right? She wanted to be God. It wasn't enough to worship God. She wanted to be God. 
She rejected God's law and, and struck out on her own, thinking she was wise. I'm finally free, she thought. I can do whatever I want to do instead of having to do what God wants me to do. I don't need God to give me life. I'm going to go create life for myself. That's what she was saying. But here's what happened. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew what? They knew they were naked. Many of us have heard those words, that story, many, many times. Have you ever stopped to think about why was it that the very first thing they knew after they disobeyed God's law is that they were naked? I mean, why not say, and they knew they were in trouble? Because <laughs> they were. Or why not say, and they knew they'd made a massive mistake? Or they knew that, that they had disobeyed? Why say, and they knew that they were naked. Well, friends, it's because few things hit closer to the heart of our human identity than our sexuality with male and female. Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Before sin entered the world, there were two things God said about us. Thing one, I made you in my image. You know what the second most important thing God says about you and me before sin shows up is? You are male and female. Don't miss that. That is arguably at the core. Your sexuality is at the core, the heart of your image-bearing status. When sin enters the world and Adam and Eve suddenly feel naked, that's a powerful sign that something at the very core of their humanity got corrupted. Think of it this way. The very first thing sin touched when it showed up on the stage was our sexuality. The very first thing sin touched, affected, was our sexuality. Nothing hits closer to the core of our status as image bearers than being male and female. Creation reflects the glory of the Creator, but sin exchanges worship of the Creator for worship of the creature. And when Adam and Eve did that, and when we do that, the third thing happens. Point three. Our sexual desires are not exempt. From the curse of sin. Follow the logic. Creation reflects the glory of the creator. Sin exchanges worship of the creator for worship of the creature. Bowing down and submitting to God's desires for following my desires. And when we do that, we are running, following, desires that are not exempt from the curse of sin. Your sexual desires, friends, are never morally neutral. Homosexual or heterosexual, our sexual desires are never morally neutral. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, don't think for a minute that somehow when Paul says God gave them up, that means that God's response to sin is, is passive or that somehow the only consequence we experience for engaging in this great exchange is just some pain that's been hardwired into the world. Not true. God, God is, has a settled and active opposition to our sin. He doesn't stand idly by when we refuse to worship him. And that 24th verse in Romans 1, I believe, has within it four of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. You know what they are? God gave them up. If you're a creature made to live in dependence and submission, glad obedience to your creator, you know what you don't want to happen more than anything else? You don't want him to give you up. You don't want him to say, oh, you want to run after that? Okay, go for it. Don't. But we have here a remarkable evidence that in God's kingdom, men and women are still responsible. And God will respond to our great exchange. He will acknowledge our exchange, our choice to worship ourselves instead of worshiping him by removing his hand of restraint and allowing us to indulge our sinful desires and do what ought not to be done. Spiritual idolatry, that exchange of worship, inevitably leads to sexual immorality. That's Paul's point. And one of the core Tenets, one of the core parts of a biblical worldview, the starting point for Christian sexual ethics, is that every part of us has been corrupted by sin, including our sexual desires. On this side of the fall, on this side of the great exchange, what is doesn't imply what ought to be. Is doesn't imply or equal ought after sin enters the world. Because what is has been corrupted and touched and affected, cursed by sin, such that what is no longer implies what ought to be. But do you realize that is the exact flip, opposite, of a secular worldview? A secular worldview, the world around us says, what is always ought to be. As long as nobody gets hurt. As long as nobody gets hurt, I have a right, a human right, to satisfy all my desires, or at least to try to. And because we think of our identity as the composite of our desires, if you question the morality of my desires, you're questioning my worth as a person. You're questioning my value as a person. And nowhere is that more true than in the realm of sexuality. sexual desires are not exempt from the curse of sin. How, how many married men in this room, heterosexual married men, have looked at a woman who is not your wife and undressed her in your mind? Guys, I've done that. I'm ashamed of that. 
but I've done that. And I've talked with enough of you to know I'm not alone. The secular world would say, because I desire to do that, it's okay. You know what the Bible says? What I desire is always suspect. What is doesn't imply what ought to be. Or or maybe you're a single adult and, and you find yourself thinking, why would God give me such a strong urge for sexual pleasure if he didn't intend me to satisfy myself in some way? I mean, what is he kind of, some sort of heavenly ogre? You know, feel this, but not really. That was really hard for me before I was married. But here's what you have to remember. Our sexual desires are not morally neutral just because we hunger for something sexually doesn't make either the desire or the activity right both desire and activity as sexual creatures before sin entered the world was limited please hear this to one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is really important. What is normative in the Bible? What establishes what is sexually allowed in the kingdom of God is never what you and I feel. Never. What establishes sexual normativity in the kingdom of God is creation. Creation. Before sin entered the world. That's what Paul appeals to. And notice how he does that. Notice how he does that. In verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Some people respond to those words, which I would argue could not be more clear in terms of what God thinks homosexual desire and activity. They they respond by arguing that the whole, you've heard this, the whole idea of sexual orientation was foreign to the first century mind. Therefore, Paul's not prohibiting anyone with a homosexual orientation as we know it from engaging in homosexual activity. He's prohibiting heterosexual men who were already married to women from engaging in pedophilia, which was a common practice among wealthy Roman married heterosexual men. Therefore, heterosexual Roman men were doing what was not natural for them. Following? And so Paul prohibited it. But that's different, many would say today, for men and women with a homosexual orientation doing what is in fact very natural. 
Bottom line, Paul's comments here are culturally constrained. What is natural has changed. We're in a new culture. And therefore, this scripture is not relevant. You following? What is natural has changed. We have this new understanding of a homosexual orientation as natural. And Paul's not prohibiting that. He's just prohibiting heterosexual Roman men from engaging in pedophilia. You know what the problem with that line of thinking is? Paul's not appealing to Roman culture to define what's natural. When he says an exchange has been made between natural and unnatural, you know what he's appealing to? He's appealing to creation. The whole context of all his teaching here is in the context of creation. The parallels between the words in this chapter and the words in Genesis 2 and 3 are striking. Which means that what God created is what is sexually natural and good and normative. So what did God create? He created the world as male and female with exclusively heterosexual activity between one man and one woman for life. That's what he created. And friends, that means something. That means that the reason same-sex passions are impure and dishonorable is not that they fly in the face of cultural tradition or or that the fundamentalist heterosexual majority is fearful of what they don't understand. And so they're out to prohibit my freedom. The, The reason same-sex passions are impure and dishonorable is that they are a rejection of God's created order. I think, sadly, many of us who would say, I I disagree with the morality of homosexuality, often do so for no other reason other than we just think, well, well, yuck. Ick. I don't, I can't relate Therefore, it must be wrong. And many of you who are under 30 may find yourself thinking, that's not my problem. I'm trying to convince my parents that my gay and lesbian friends are actually pretty nice people. You know what's missing in both cases? A conviction, a biblical conviction, that what is sexually normative doesn't change from culture to culture and time to time. It has been rooted and grounded and solidified by God in creation before sin entered the world. We've got to get that right. Otherwise, we're appealing to nothing more than ignorance and ick. And lest you think that whereas Paul had a problem with homosexuality, Jesus did not. I've heard that before. Realize that in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Jesus some questions about marriage and divorce and sexuality, guess what Jesus quoted first? Genesis 2. He knew his Bible. Like Paul, he reaches back to creation for what is normative. Same-sex desires are the result of the curse of sin. And homosexual activity is forbidden in God's word 
no less than heterosexual fornication or idolatry or adultery. All of it is an expression of our great exchange. I will no longer follow God's desires. I will seek after my own. Brother, you do that when you mentally undress a woman in your mind. Sister, you do that when you choose, though you are not married, to satisfy yourself sexually in the privacy of your bedroom. And if you experience same-sex attraction and indulge those desires, you join all the rest of us in seizing our sexuality in rebellion against the king. So here's the conclusion. This is the end of part one. We like to think of sex as a private issue. Do we not? You know, on a scale of one to ten, ten most common discussion topics around coffee on Sunday, sex might be 15. (laughs) We think of it as a private issue. God says it's a worship issue. And you may feel like you don't have control over your erotic inclinations, but that doesn't render them morally neutral. Creation reflects the glory of the Creator. Sin exchanges worship of the Creator for worship of a creature. And our sexual desires are never exempt from the curse of sin. That means that homosexuality, church, is not a political issue. Nor is it a conservative Christian issue. It's a gospel issue because it shows us how much we need a Savior. Every one of us is naturally ungodly. Every one of us is naturally unrighteous. And so it's good to remember that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 applies to everyone in this room. Listen to these words. We're going to dive more into this next week. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Church, every one of us is in that list somewhere. That's frightening. But, if you've repented of that idolatry, And though you continue to struggle and experience all manner of unholy desires in all sorts of areas, if you are trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this is what's true of you, friend. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. For now, I simply challenge you with this. I want you to go before God this week and say, regardless of your sexual orientation, Lord, am I glorifying you with my sexuality? Have I said in some way, no touching? I'll raise my hand on Sunday, but don't talk about my sex life. I pray that God would make this church a place where sexual brokenness of all kinds experiences the transforming power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
was afraid at the outset, I thank you for your word. Many of the things I've said today are hard to speak. I imagine for some of us they are really hard to hear. But Lord, I pray that whatever our sexual orientation, whatever our current practice of sexuality is, that you would cause us to stop assuming that if we want it, it must be good. Lord, help us to see how that is playing God. I pray, King Jesus, that you would begin a new work in this church where sexual sin is brought into the light. And that wherever we are worshiping our physical desires instead of you, that we would so feel the conviction of the Spirit of God in our hearts that we can no longer be silent. But we have to speak up and confess and seek help. Lord, thank you for helping us through your word today. Thank you for bringing us back to creation. I pray next week as we turn to how to respond to our own same-sex desires and care for and love folks in the LGBT community with the gospel that you would give us courage and wisdom that we might become a people of broken-hearted boldness. In Jesus' name.